If you have your Bible, you can turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. We're continuing to look at the opening portion of this timely and and powerful letter, and today we're going to give attention to verses 6 to 8. So Colossians chapter 1, verses 6 to 8. I'm going to begin reading in verse 3 so that we have a reminder of the context uh, for our verses. So please follow along with me as we read. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church, beginning in verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray now and ask God to bless the reading and the preaching of His Word. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that You would help us now by the Holy Spirit to hear the words of the Bible with faith, that we would listen and believe, God, that believing we would obey, and that obeying we would bring glory to Your name. We pray, Father, that You would help us to be humble as a church, to submit ourselves to the Scriptures and to, and to listen to what it is, Father, that each, each passage in Your Word teaches to us. Lord, please keep me from error today. Help me to be faithful to the Scriptures and help Your people, God, to know the truth and to hold fast to it, even as You hold fast to us until the day that Christ returns. And we pray this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. I've been thinking about the Great Commission quite a bit in preparing for this series. The Great Commission, as many of you know, was the Lord Jesus' final instruction to His disciples before He ascended again to the Father's right hand. You probably remember what Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's the Great Commission. Some people have said that Jesus' words there are the marching orders of the church. And I think that's a fitting description. In Christ's declaration, we find our orders, our charge, our calling as the Lord Jesus' church. We're to take the Gospel to the nations, So that disciples are made, churches are planted, and the gospel grows among people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. That's the church's calling. But have you ever thought about how staggering it is that Jesus left a global mission to such a small band of followers? We know the Great Commission so well that we often overlook this, but remember, friends, in Matthew 28, there's 11 disciples on the mountaintop with Jesus and a handful of other people. 11 disciples. And He tells them to go to the nations. It's doubtful that any of the disciples were well-traveled. 
And here they are receiving orders to go to people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And yes, I know that the commission is given to the entire church down through the ages, but still, just think about it at that initial moment. A global mission, global, a global mission is given to a handful of followers. If you were reading through the Gospel of Matthew for the first time, your immediate question would be, how is this going to work? How is this Gospel message going to grow throughout the entire world? And then you come to the book of Acts, which picks up where the Great Commission left off. And what we find in Acts is just as staggering as the global mission Jesus gave to His church. These handful of followers, empowered by the Holy Spirit, begin to take the Gospel throughout the entire world. First Jerusalem, then Judea and Samaria, until finally the book of Acts ends with Paul preaching in Rome, which was the very center of the known world. So if the Great Commission itself was staggering, then the progress of that commission is even more so. The Gospel message is spreading. The church is growing. Once again, the question confronts us. How is this happening? What explains this wonderful growth of the Gospel? Now, you might be inclined to say that the apostles are the answer. Men like Peter and Paul, who were incredible pioneers, men of unusual boldness and missionary zeal. And on one level, that's true. Peter and Paul and the other apostles were unique. And they were bold, zealous men whose lives are worthy of our imitation. But do you know what's striking? When you read the book of Acts, it's not the apostles who are presented as the reason for the wonderful growth of the Gospel. It's not. It's not the apostles. No, the answer that Acts gives us is the Word of God. Or we could say the very Gospel message itself. Acts chapter 6, verse 7, And the Word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Or Acts 12.24, But the Word of God increased and multiplied. Or Acts 13.49, And the Word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. Or Acts 19.20, So the Word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Do you hear that, friends? The growth of the Gospel was staggering, but it wasn't because of the apostles, per se. It was because of the Gospel message itself. Each new stage of Great Commission advance occurred as the Word of God increased and multiplied. Now, what does this have to do with Colossians chapter 1? Well, not to put it too bluntly, but everything. This has everything to do with Colossians chapter 1. And therefore, it has much to say to us. What we find in our passage today, just three brief verses, what we find is this. The way the Gospel advanced in Acts is the same way the Gospel advanced in Colossae. The church in Colossae was birthed not by an apostle's presence. Paul did not plant this church. Instead, the church in Colossae was birthed by an everyday Christian who followed the apostles' model of faithfully preaching the powerful gospel message. It was through the faithful proclamation of Epaphras that the gospel took root in Colossae and then bore fruit in the salvation of sinners to the glory of God. And that brings this text home to us, friends. Our passage today 
is an encouraging and compelling presentation of gospel growth. Do you want to know how the gospel grows in people's hearts and in churches? This passage gives us a glimpse of it. It's an encouraging presentation of gospel growth. There's all kinds of stuff out there today that you can read about how Christians and churches can grow. Some of it is good, and some of it is less than good. But in God's kindness, this passage brings clarity and direction, and it does so through the example of this man named Epaphras and his work in Colossae. Specifically, verses 6-8 to highlight for us two integral components of gospel growth. Number one, the power of the gospel message. And number two, the priority, therefore, of faithful messengers. How does the gospel grow? It's the power of the gospel message and the priority, therefore, of faithful messengers. Let's consider each of those components a little bit more closely as well as what they mean for the church today. First of all, we should note in verse 6 the power of the gospel message. The power of the gospel message. You'll recall from last week that Paul begins this letter in his typical way by giving thanks to God. That was the focus of verses 3 to 5. And that focus continues in verse 6. But even as Paul continues with thanksgiving, he now begins to elaborate more on the Colossians' experience of the gospel. And in doing so, Paul makes a rather stunning point that the Colossians have received the same gospel that is presently turning the world upside down. In fact, if you look at verse 6, what stands out is the incredible power of the gospel itself. Notice that Paul says the gospel has the power to produce life. Verse 6 describes the gospel as bearing fruit and increasing. The idea here is of continuous productivity. It's not that the gospel bears fruit once or grows for a moment. No, the gospel bears fruit and continues to do so. It increases all the more. As sinners hear the gospel message with faith, their hearts are reborn from death to life. They're no longer prisoners of the kingdom of darkness, but citizens of Christ's kingdom. And their lives now bear fruit in good works that bring glory to God. That's the fruit of the gospel. That's bearing fruit for God. What's more, the gospel message is proclaimed, and as it is proclaimed, it never runs out of this power. The gospel's power never runs short, Paul's saying here. There's an increasing or a growing harvest of souls that are saved from sin's domination and brought to live under the Lordship of Christ. That's the growth that Paul has in view in verse 6. The gospel's power never loses steam, you could say. It has the power to produce life. It's bearing fruit and it's growing. But Paul presses on with a deeper point, one that goes against the false teachers who are infiltrating this church. Not only does the gospel have the power to produce life, but this power is not limited by people or place. Note the global scope of verse 6. The gospel is bearing fruit and increasing among the Colossians, just as it does throughout the whole world. Friends, that is an astonishing statement. One that should greatly encourage these Christians. Remember, the false teachers are telling the Colossian Christians that there is something lacking in their gospel experience. You're missing something, they say. There's some level of life 
there's some kind of power that you have failed to achieve. That's what the false teachers are saying. But how could that be the case, Paul asks, if the same fruit you experience is being experienced also throughout the whole world? How could there be anything lacking? You see, the false teachers were actually the ones preaching a truncated gospel. They were the ones missing out on the power. By focusing on local local pagan practices and old Jewish rituals, the false teachers were preaching a very small gospel. Nothing worse than a small gospel. A very small gospel. And one that certainly couldn't give life throughout the whole world. And so Paul asks these Christians, how could the gospel of Christ be sufficient if sinners are being saved in Colossae and in Ephesus, in Jerusalem and in Rome, in Antioch and to the ends of the earth? How can the gospel of Christ be powerless if all across the empire churches are being planted and no matter how hard the authorities resist, the gospel just keeps pressing ahead? How could there be anything wrong with that message? Friends, it's staggering to us, it should be staggering to us, that 2,000 years later, the gospel is still going. It can't be stopped. That's not the testimony of an insufficient gospel that needs something else. That's the testimony of a powerful gospel that produces life and is never limited by people or place. Still, the Apostle Paul is not finished. He closes verse 6 with a reminder that this gospel power is experienced by faith alone. Listen again to the closing line of verse 6. As it also does among you, the gospel, it's bearing fruit among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. So Paul makes his point unmistakably clear. This globally fruitful gospel is the same message the Colossians have embraced. But how did they embrace it? How did they experience this powerful, fruit-producing gospel? Not through their own works, as if the gospel were dependent upon them, but by faith alone. When Paul says they heard the gospel, he means they believed it. They listened to gospel preaching. And through that preaching, the Spirit granted them new life and faith in Christ. But they didn't merely hear the gospel as though receiving phonetic sounds of words has some magical effect. No, they understood it, Paul said. You heard it and you understood it. They understood what the Gospel declared about God. That He is the Creator and Judge of all living things. They understood what the Gospel declared about Christ. That He is supreme and the only Savior who purchased forgiveness for His people through His blood at the cross. And they understood what the Gospel declared about their own hearts that they were sinners separated from God, and that their only hope of salvation was to cast themselves on Christ, believing that His death was in their place and His resurrection guaranteed them life. Friends, that's what it means to hear the Gospel and to understand it. It means you're saved. You hear the Gospel message and by faith you understand what it says about God, what it says about Christ, and what it means for you as a sinner. Overall then, you can see what the Apostle Paul is doing here in verse 6. He's using the testimony of the Gospel's power in the world to encourage the Colossians to hold fast to that very same Gospel message. If you just put it very simply, Paul says what the Gospel is doing out there, it's also doing among you in here. That's his point. 
And therefore, you don't need to add anything to the Gospel. Instead, you need to persevere in the same faith that has been saving you from the beginning. That's the point of verse 6. Friends, what I want us to take away from verse 6 is that the Gospel message itself is the power of God. The message itself is the power. It's through the proclamation of Christ crucified and resurrected that God brings life and growth to His people. Do you remember Jesus' parable of the seed growing secretly? It's not one of Jesus' better known parables, but it probably should be. It comes in Mark chapter 4. And Jesus is actually answering the same question that we're asking in this passage. How does the Gospel grow? You may remember in Mark chapter 4 that Jesus' ministry is virtually exploding with popularity, except among the religious leaders. He's healing people nearly left and right. Great Great crowds are following Him, but significant opposition is rising up against Him as well. So in response, in Mark chapter 4, Jesus tells this series of parables. And the parable of the seed growing secretly ties in very well with our our passage. This is what Jesus says. The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. You can hear Jesus' point. Just as the life of a plant is found in the seed itself, so also the power for God's kingdom to grow is found in the Gospel itself. Do you hear it? Friends, I'm convinced that one of the great challenges facing the church today is the question of whether or not we believe the Gospel is the power of God for life and godliness. Notice I didn't say that the Gospel is the power of God for salvation. We do a good job at telling sinners, if you want to be saved, you have to believe in the Gospel in order to get to heaven. But what about life and godliness after that initial point? Do we believe that the Gospel is the power of God for life and godliness? It's so easy, like the Colossians, to get distracted by competing messages that promise renewed power and deeper impact. It's so easy to get caught up in the latest fads of what is going to unlock the Christian life for the church today. And yet, when you read the New Testament over and over, you find the apostles calling God's people to do what? Remember the power of the Gospel. How do we do do that, you ask? How do we remember the power of the Gospel? Well, this might surprise you, but it's not that complicated. It's actually pretty simple, though that doesn't make it easy. We know God's Word through reading, studying, meditation. We live a life of repentance and faith, daily confessing our sin and renewing our minds to obey Christ. And we connect deeply with a Gospel-preaching church. That's how you remember the Gospel. That's how the Gospel's powerful message bears fruit in your life. Know God's Word. That's the Gospel's content. Daily repent and believe. That's the Gospel's application. And deeply connect to a local church. That's the Gospel's community. That's how you remember the power of the Gospel. So I'll ask you, friends, do you believe the Gospel message is powerful enough for you to live and grow in the Christian life? 
Or, like the Colossians, have you slowly, maybe even unintentionally, begun to think there's something else besides the Gospel that you need? Some other source of power that will cause you to grow. Know God's Word. Daily repent and believe. And live in consistent, honest community with the church. Friends, those things may not seem very powerful, but that's how the Gospel works. That's how the Gospel bears fruit in God's people. That's Paul's reminder here in verse 6. The Colossians were not missing anything. They knew by faith the powerful Gospel of God. And the same is true today for every church that holds fast to Christ. If we root our lives in the Gospel, we're not missing anything. In fact, it's just the opposite. We're embracing by faith the life-producing power of the Gospel message. So that's the first component for Gospel growth. It's the power of the Gospel message itself. We said at the outset though, there were two components. And as you can hear with that first component, our thinking is incomplete without the second. A message, even a powerful one like the Gospel, requires a messenger. And that's the second component we have to consider. The priority of faithful messengers. That's the second component. The priority of faithful messengers. In verse 7, Paul introduces us to Epaphras, the brother who planted the church in Colossae. Epaphras was a native of Colossae, but at some point he moved away from the city, perhaps going to one of the larger neighboring cities like Ephesus or Laodicea. And it was there, away from Colossae, that Epaphras met the Apostle Paul. And from that point forward, Epaphras' life changed. He heard the Gospel from Paul's preaching. God saved Epaphras. And then in due time, Epaphras returned to his hometown to proclaim the same Gospel that had transformed his life. You see, that's the, the spiritual family tree of the Colossian church. Paul to Epaphras, then Epaphras to the Colossian believers. Now you've got to understand by this point in time, friends, the city of Colossae was not what it used to be. Colossae used to be a crossroads of commerce and culture in the Roman Empire, but those days were in the past. The empire relocated one of the roads that ran through the city, and now Colossae's position was overshadowed by larger cities in the region. In fact, it's not an exaggeration to say that Colossae was the least important city to which any of Paul's letters was addressed. This is the least important place that he wrote to. So to use just a modern day analogy, Epaphras, Epaphras was a church planter, but his vision of church planting didn't take him to New York City or Los Angeles, you know, like a globally strategic important city at the crossroads of the world. It took him to a place like Blytheville. Who goes there? Nobody. That's the point. Epaphras went home to what was becoming a small and out-of-the-way town. He wasn't at the forefront of the great global movement of God. Or so you would think. And yet, it's precisely at this point that we see the most important feature of Epaphras' ministry. He was faithful. He was faithful. In fact, that's what Paul emphasizes here in verses 7-8. to eight, Unlike the false teachers who could not be trusted, Epaphras' faithfulness proved him to be a trustworthy minister. Notice with me how Paul emphasizes Epaphras' faithfulness. 
To begin with, Epaphras was grounded in the Gospel. Look at the first line of verse 7 where Paul says the Colossians learned the Gospel from Epaphras. That word learned is the key, friends. It carries the idea of thoroughgoing instruction. You can't make disciples fast. Epaphras didn't blow into town, give a quick presentation, ask for a show of hands, and then breeze on out of town to the next place. No, he moved into the city. He preached, he taught, he answered questions. He passed on the truths that Paul had handed down to him. He probably answered the same questions over and over again. In other words, Epaphras embraced the slow, steady work of making disciples. And you can't make disciples fast. It wasn't flashy. It wasn't easy. But it was faithful. And that was the key. Epaphras was grounded in the Gospel. But notice also that Epaphras was devoted to Christ. Unlike the false teachers who wanted to make a name for themselves, Epaphras was in the ministry for the glory of Jesus. Look how Paul in verse 7 identifies Epaphras as our beloved fellow servant. That's probably a little tame. It's our beloved fellow slave. A servant claims nothing for himself, but carries out his work in devotion to and in dependence upon his master. And that was Epaphras' mindset in ministry. Christ was his master. And it was to Christ that Epaphras displayed his allegiance. And if that allegiance meant returning to a small town and taking up the slow, steady work of making disciples, then Epaphras would do it. Why? Because Epaphras was faithful. And that faithfulness was exhibited in his devotion to Christ. Notice finally that Epaphras was humble in his motivation. Look at the end of verse 7 where Paul says, Epaphras is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. Friends, there's no higher compliment for a Christian than to be called a servant of Christ on behalf of other believers. That's the highest compliment you can give someone. A servant of Christ on behalf of other Christians. That was Epaphras' testimony. Unlike the false teachers who pursued ministry for selfish gain, Epaphras served selflessly for the sake of others. He didn't want something from them. He wanted something for them. Namely, their growth and joy in Christ. You see, Epaphras had learned well what the Apostle Paul had taught him. It requires humility to pour your life out for the good of others. It requires the patience of a farmer who knows that the crop won't come tomorrow or even next week but who still humbly, faithfully tends the field until the harvest comes. Have you ever thought about how fruitless the majority of a farmer's days are? He just doesn't see anything, but he just keeps working. That's what Epaphras did. He went to Colossae in humility, and in the Lord's grace a church was planted, grounded in the Gospel, devoted to Christ, humble in motivation. That's the testimony of a faithful servant. But here's the key takeaway for us. Here's the connection that we need to grasp. Why was Epaphras able to pursue such a faithful ministry? Why was he able to be so faithful? Because he believed that the power was in the gospel message and not in himself. Because he believed the power was in the gospel message and not 
in himself. Do you see the connection, friends? The power of the gospel message convinced Epaphras that he could just be free to be faithful. I'm just free to be faithful. Because the gospel has the power to bring life. Epaphras was able to faithfully devote himself to the slow, steady work of discipleship. The power of the gospel message, which is what we looked at first, puts the priority on faithful messengers who will proclaim it. That's really the one thing that I'm trying to get at in this whole sermon. The power of the gospel message should put our priority on being faithful. God displays the power of the gospel not through the mighty or the eloquent, but through the faithful, through servants like Epaphras. You know, we often read Paul's letters and we think something like this, wow, I could never do what Paul did. I could never be like the Apostle Paul. I'm not very bold. I don't know the Bible very well. I'm not a pioneering person. Travel makes me nervous. I guess gospel ministry is just not for me. But perhaps we're looking at gospel ministry all wrong. Rather than focusing on pioneering Paul, what if we instead focused on faithful Epaphras? You can be Epaphras. Here was a man who took the truth that he learned and he applied it in the place that God had placed him and he did so in faith, trusting that God would bring growth in his time through his gospel. Friends, that's a model for ministry that I can get behind. That's a model for ministry that I can devote my life to because it's got one goal, faithfulness. Just do this and keep doing it. God supplies the power through the gospel and He asks us then to prioritize faithfulness as His messengers. This is the only point that I've wanted to make all day. This is gospel growth. God supplies the power. He wants you to be faithful. That's how the Great Commission is carried out. God supplies the power and He wants you to be faithful. So here's the point that I, I wrote this part of the sermon first. And then I wrote the rest of it to get to this part. What if each of us brought this Epaphras mindset to our neighborhoods, our workplaces, our homes, and even this church? What if each of us brought this Epaphras mindset to our neighborhoods, our workplaces, our homes, and even this church? Rather than viewing gospel ministry as something for quote-unquote exceptional Christians, what if we placed our confidence in the gospel's power and then prioritized faithfulness right where God has us at this moment? Instead of assuming that ministry is always just over the next horizon, what if it's right here where you are? on the street that you live, in the office that you work in, the church that you're already a part of, the children the Lord's already given you? What if each of us adopted that kind of mindset? We're a small church, but you know, do you know what? Epaphras was just one dude, just one faithful servant. And look what the Lord did with him through the Gospel. A church was planted, and all because one Christian, one Christian took seriously that the gospel is the power of God, and then said, I'm going to go give my life away to do that. And a church was planted, and people were saved. One brother believed in the power of the gospel, and then devoted himself to faithfulness. Your neighborhood, your workplace, your home, this church, brothers and sisters, God has called you to this ministry. 
He supplies the power in the gospel message. And what he asks of each of us is simply to be faithful. That's what Epaphras did. He was grounded in the gospel. He was devoted to Christ. He was humble in his motivation. And then very simply, he just got to work. Right in the place where God had already given him the opportunity. Friends, this is how the gospel grows. What started on that mountaintop with Jesus' 11 disciples has been carried on through men like Paul and Epaphras, and that mission has come all the way down to you and to me. And even though the times and the culture have changed, the components of gospel growth remain the same. The power is found in the gospel message, and therefore the priority is on faithful messengers. And so really the question that comes down to us is, will we be faithful? That was Paul's model in Acts That was Epaphras' example in Colossae. And I pray and plead with God that that would be our testimony in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our homes, and in this church. Amen? Let's pray. Father, help us. We so often believe that there is something other than the Gospel that's necessary to give us the power to see the Great Commission advance and to see people grow. Would you help us to repent, Father, of our unbelief? Would you remind us even now, God, through the testimony of our own hearts and through the testimony of your Word, that the Gospel itself is powerful to bring life and to bring growth, and therefore we can devote ourselves to faithfulness. Not somewhere else, not some other day, but today, right where you have us, that we can be faithful. Help us to believe this, God, The Lord Jesus purchased a people for Himself with His own blood. And You have given us this mission to see them brought in. Help us to be faithful. And remind us, Father, and encourage us that the Gospel itself is the power for that work. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.